take your Bibles, please, if you're not already there, and go to Philippians chapter 2. I will say that is my favorite statement of all week. Take your Bibles and turn to Philippians chapter 2. So if you're visiting with us this morning, we're on this amazing journey through the book of Philippians. We've made all our way all the way through chapter 1. We've looked at this amazing theme. If you turn your hand out over, you can kind of see it designated there in the bottom side, just the journey we've been on. The journey with this theme of being gospel-centered. Well, what does that mean? Verse 27 says it so beautifully. Paul, in verse 27, says, Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ. In other words, as we looked at the terminology used there, live as a worthy citizen of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Made complete sense to a group of people in a Roman colony 800 miles away from Rome. Live as a worthy citizen of Rome. They would, they would think regularly. Now Paul says, as believers, as participants in the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ, we now live, we should live as a worthy citizen of that gospel. So how does that happen? Well, we started into, we watched this theme of gospel-centered life transition into this theme of unity. So pretty much the first how that Paul goes to is how are we going to live this gospel-centered life? By being unified in the body of Christ. Um, We've painted that picture contextually of what that looks like, but uh, I, I think I'll just say this, I'll finish reading verse 27 and we'll work right into chapter 2. Here's how Paul brings application. So that whether I come and see you or am absent, Paul says in verse 27, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. So how is unity now going to be accomplished? So we have this theme of gospel-centered life working into unity. Now how? Chapter 2, verses 3 and 4 clearly show us the plan. Here's what he says. Paul, through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, says, Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only on his own interests, but also on the interests of others. So clearly from this passage, as we looked at last time we were together studying this passage, sincere unity comes through sacrificial humility. Unity through humility. And that theme drives us all the way through chapter 2. We're going to be looking at this unity and this humility. So we need to keep this in mind as being that contextual theme that all these verses flow through. Now, let's unpack this further, this concept of unity through humility, by looking at a couple of my favorite verses in all of Scripture. Philippians chapter 2, 5 through 11. But before we even get there, we want to acknowledge this fact that we are naturally people who are inclined to look for examples, templates of perfection. I mean, we're constantly looking for that. My kids doing their book reports, David doing his book report, he's got the model of how to put the book report together. 
all the way through. I mean, my kids enjoy learning skills in different sports, and what do they do? They go and turn on, now it's YouTube, right? You turn on the YouTube of the person that does it exactly right. You find that model, you find that template that's doing it exactly right. That's not unfamiliar to what we do every single day. You already saw this slide. I'm not a computer guy by passion. I do it out of necessity. <laughs> but this week, sitting down and thinking through this, and just looking through the programs, I mean, any program that you use to create something, almost all of them embedded in the program will have something like this. Create a new document based on the what? The template. The example. And then after you create it, save this template because now it's better. You're constantly looking for the example, the template. Another dialogue I was running into this week is set this as your default. So what are we doing on these programs? On our computer programs, we can constantly look for that perfect template. It says it just the way I want it. Uh, in my capstone project, uh, I was, for my degree, I was looking at, uh, I mean, you have to basically write this book, and you're constantly going to the set template. You're running to it. And somehow you push a couple buttons, and, and all of a sudden the template's all messed up. And what do you do? You go right back to, I need to find the right template. I need to run to it. Brothers and sisters, this is all over in our lives. Uh, I was thinking in terms of sports. Our family enjoys sports, and we've been ingrained to think, and you already saw where I'm headed with this, but we've been ingrained to think about there being a you know, pinnacle of the sport um, person who's arrived, this professional athlete that everyone tries to be like that person. They try to attain what this person does. Even though there's really no hope, some of them, that they attain to this, they're constantly looking to that. I was thinking and singing a song this week that's already popped up there. Thinking back into 1992. Now I understand, some of you, especially maybe in the front of this section, were only a thought around 1992. All right? Others of you in this room, you might remember this amazing Gatorade commercial campaign, this marketing strategy, and it went something like this. Sometimes I dream that he is me. You got to see that's how I dream to be. Boom, 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 boom. You have to put in the boom there. I dream I move. I dream I groove like some got it. I'm surprised only a couple got that. I mean, I'm telling you, 1992, I couldn't stop singing this song, I think. I mean, all of my buddies, we would watch Michael Jordan. Last night we had a debate that lasted two seconds in our home about the greatest basketball player ever. Unquestionably, Michael Jordan, all right? But there was this deal going on where Michael Jordan, he, I mean, he was selling this Gatorade stuff, and this song, and, and they so beautifully articulated it in this song. If you remember back, this song's being sung, and all of a sudden you got this little kid singing out real loudly, and what is he singing out? I want to be, I want to be, I want to be like Mike. And you're like, what? They, they put it in there. Okay, now you force me. We're going to see it. There it is, right there. Sometimes I dream that he is me. 
This song drove I don't know how many people to travel towards the basketball rim with their tongue hanging out of their mouth. You know what I'm talking about. Be like Mike. I don't know how many shoes were sold to be like Mike, but this particular one was for a certain drink, Gatorade, which has since gone crazy. I don't have all, the, all of the stats right now of where Gatorade was and where it is now. But selling all over the place. Last week in the mountains of Colorado, hiking around, guess what I drank every day? Electrolytes, Gatorade. I was pounding them down. And this whole campaign was be like Mike. Forget the basketball thing, just drink Gatorade. <laughs> I'm going to tell you, we reach for whatever template we can. I mean, this is normal to what we do in life every day. So the passage we're looking at today, and yes, we're getting there. <laughs> The passage we're looking at today is not abnormal to the way we think every day of our lives. To set a template, to set a default, to set a primary example for what we're doing. However, brothers and sisters in Jesus Christ, in no uncertain terms do I want to say this. That Jesus Christ as King of Kings and Lord of Lords is the perfect example, the supreme example of our lives. And that's exactly what the Apostle Paul says. Can we see this in this passage? Can we see this default for unity through humility? Actually, I want to start again in verse 3, leading up to the verse 5. Paul says in verse 3, Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness or in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only at his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in form, human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. Normally we look at our key idea at the end, but I want us to look at that right away this morning. If you were to summarize this passage, you would have to land somewhere like this. We must deeply consider the example of Jesus Christ. Deeply consider it. Count it. We must think of it often. This is our template. This is our default. Now, if we were to take this in context, which we want to do every week, here's what it would say. Something like this. In our obedient pursuit of unity through humility, we must deeply consider the example of Jesus Christ. What's the context here? The context here is unity in the body of Christ through humility. And now because of this unity through humility, we have to consider our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ every single day. So let's go through this starting with verse 5. If you look with me at verse 5, 
have this mind among yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus. The point of the entire passage for, is for us to consider the example of Jesus Christ. Um, so today, that's what we're going to do. We're going to look more at our Savior, Jesus Christ, the beauty of our Savior, Jesus Christ, to see exactly what Jesus Christ did to provide unity for us with a holy God. This morning, we're going to look at a couple points, starting with this one. To provide unity between God and man, Christ humbled himself by becoming humanity. And then in just a little bit, we're going to advance that thought and we're going to see that to provide unity between God and man, Christ humbled himself by dying for, humili- for humanity. Basically this, in order for the gospel to happen, Jesus Christ had to humble himself. I mean, basically this, if Jesus Christ did not humble himself the way we're looking at today, there would be no gospel What is at the base of the gospel, this good news that we talked about all the way through chapter one, here it is, that we now, as rebellious human beings, have access to a holy God. He is now our high priest, bringing us into into the realm of the holiness of God. This is what Jesus does. What Jesus does is he brings unity between a broken world and a holy God. We have to remember that all the way through this text. That this Jesus provides unity between God and man. So to provide unity between God and man, first of all, Christ humbled himself. Can we just unpack this a little bit? Let's see exactly how Jesus Christ humbled himself, starting with this. By the way, there's three primary statements we're going to look at under this point. As you travel through this text, this is, um, this is really a passage of, of degrees. So a point will be made, another point will be made, pretty much advancing the argument and heightening the argument. Another point will be made, heightening the argument. To the end of all of the points that will be made, it's almost like the desired effect from the Apostle Paul through the Holy Spirit is our jaws to be on the ground. Like, wow, Jesus did that for me. So how does Paul start? He starts by saying, Christ emptied himself of divine privilege. We find that in verse 6. Would you look with me at verse 6? who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. Let us just go through these three primary statements. Let's start with this, looking at this statement right here. Who being, who through, though he was in the form of God. What is this concept of form of God? I'm going to tell you, there's been so much theological debate about this, and we are not going to answer the question incomplete in five minutes. But I will say that what this is talking about is that he was in the exact likeness of God. The express image of God, as you find in other passages. This form is an inward reality of exact likeness. But it doesn't stop there. A lot of commentaries, commentators will go right to the inward theological aspect of it, that Jesus Christ was, was the very nature of God. And yes, that is 100% accurate. But as you go to this passage, it's, 
it's a little bit more advanced from that. It's not just the inner nature of God. Jesus Christ was the outer expression of God. He was in the form of God. He was the perfect outer expression of a holy God. This is who Jesus was and is. Which, by the way, a lot of times you go to these passages, you want to kind of see the metaphors that are being written in here and understand the context of what's, how, what, how it's being developed. This is beautiful because in metaphoric language, this concept of form, a lot of times it talks of clothing. Like, what? Garments. That Jesus Christ was in the perfect form of God, this garmentry he wore. So what is that talking about? If you would go with me in your minds back to the Roman culture. Remember this Roman culture that we've been taking, talking about all along the way. Garments, vestiges, colors, uh, pendants, shawls. All of these things were worn to prove your amazing status. That's what happened in the Roman culture. People would embrace these things. By the way, this made its way even in the church of Philippi. Do you remember a, young, a lady who came to Christ by the riverside? She was a seller. She was probably a very affluent woman. She was a seller of what? Purple. All right? This makes its way into this concept of outer garments. They knew what was being talked about here. There were certain clothing items Certain vestiges that only people of status would wear. And Paul, essentially through metaphor, and I don't want to make this too complicated, but he's saying this. Because Christ was God in his nature, he rightfully wore the robes of Almighty God, the Almighty God of creation. This Jesus Christ was in the form of God. He had right to wear these robes. He was in the form of God. So Paul, to add to the argument, says this. Who was, though he was in the form of God, let's look at the next phrase. Did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. So though he was in the exact image of God, even to the point of outward expression of God, he did not count that equality as something to be grasped. Jesus disregarded equality of existence and privilege as something to be held onto or clung tightly to. This week, thinking on illustrations of this, I couldn't come up with a better illustration than what happens when my daughter, Emma, gets a lollipop. Good luck getting that out of her hand. <laughs> She grasped that thing so hard. And as much as I say, young child, obey your daddy. She's holding that thing with all she's got. Don't you dare take this, daddy. Uh, another just ridiculous illustration that comes to my mind is those pesky squirrels all over our property that we're slowly eliminating. I shoot one of those things and my dog who can't wait to get out of the fence and go retrieve it, as soon as he retrieve it, retrieves it, I don't want him to have that thing in its mouth. That's gross. But he's got this thing in his mouth, and I'm like, Hunter, release that thing. He looks at me with these big dog eyes and is like, are you kidding me? Let that thing go when we work so hard for that? 
The whole concept of what's happening here is God the Father, God the Son, Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ has all of the heavenly privileges in his grasp. He is participating in all of the privileges with God the Father and God the Spirit. And then, out of obedience to the redemptive plan of the Trinity, what does Jesus Christ himself do? He releases that privilege. I mean, that is so foreign to how we think. In our culture, it's go get it and grab it and hold on to it with all you've got. That status, when you finally climb the ladder, don't let it go. Don't make a decision in your workforce that will have, make you fall back down the ladder. You hold it with all you've got. And now in this passage, we find Jesus Christ himself. And what is he, what is he doing for, for unity through humility? He's taking all of the privileges of heaven and he's releasing them so that we would have a right relationship with a holy God. Jesus Christ, the primary example, as the passage says, who through, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. And then highlighted down here in the red is one of, one of the phrases in your Bibles that has caused some incredible theological debate. <laughs> but he emptied himself. Okay, what is this? Some of your translations will say he made himself of no reputation, but the basic concept, the Greek word kanao or kenosis is where we get this theologically, is that he truly did empty himself. However, and this is a, a massive however, <laughs> we need to get this right. When Jesus Christ emptied himself, it's not like emptying yourself of the contents of a, of a, of a, you know, a cup. When we, when we go through this, it's not like a bottle that's being emptied. Rather, it's a voluntary lowering of rank is what it's looking like. He's emptying himself of his rank, his prestige, holding on to this prestige. And this is exactly what Jesus Christ did. Being with God the Father and God the Spirit, the divine trinity in heaven, what did God the Son do? He emptied himself of his divine privilege. Um, so some time for some theological clarification. This concept has massive potential for theological derailment. I mean, derailment is the right word. Train wreck. Why? What did Christ empty himself of? You ever thought about that? Please understand in no uncertain terms this. Jesus Christ did not empty himself of his deity, his divine nature. According to the gospel plan, according to the whole of scriptures, Jesus Christ did not empty himself of his divine nature. Why? I mean, very clearly, very simply this. If Jesus Christ released his divine nature, we could not have the gospel. Like, what are you talking about? Well, when you think about what the gospel is, is God, the Father, sending God the Son to die for our sins. In order for Jesus Christ to die for our sins, he had to completely identify with the holy God, and he had to completely identify with a sinful man. That's what had to happen. Now, when we think about what happened here, Jesus Christ could not have let go of his divine nature. Why? 
In order for Jesus Christ to identify with a holy God, he had to be divine in nature. Jesus Christ had to fully become man at the same time become, be, remain fully God. And here's how we say it. Jesus Christ, fully man and fully God at the same time in order to fully redeem. If any one of those parts of the equation is tampered with, we could not have full redemption. Jesus Christ came to fully redeem, and in order to do that, he had to be fully God and fully man at the exact same time. Does your brain and my brain completely understand the hype? It's called the hypostatic union of Jesus Christ. Absolutely not. We're not going to completely understand it. This is, this is completely out of our ballpark of understanding. But does the scripture teach it? Absolutely yes. Can we be saved without it? No. You have to have this perfect God-man in all of his complete nature in order to redeem men. And so what did Jesus empty himself of then? Divine privilege. He emptied himself of his location. Just think of it in terms of location. His natural prestige and glory of being with the Trinity. Uh, the infinitude of riches basic independence of will with God the Father and God the Son. Jesus Christ willingly, all of those things, he released. He put himself under the dynamic leadership and, and uh, guidance of God the Father and God the Spirit. Why did Jesus Christ do that? Why did Jesus Christ leave his prestige, brothers and sisters? It is to redeem our souls he humbled himself. By the way, lest we think that the, cause, I mean, I'm not going to bring up the current theological debates of what happened. There's even some going on in this very town, in this country, about the, the person and work of Jesus Christ and the kenosis, as we mentioned. I'll, I'll just say this. This is not a new battle. If we want to in our minds, we can go back over 1,500 years to 451 A.D., and, and, and we can go back to this thing called the Council of Chalcedon. This is where this theological debate was battled out in a real way. You can go back and read all the way through this and the conclusions that were come up with. This is not new to theological debate. So what do we hold to? We hold to the fact that Jesus Christ, being complete God, complete man, at the same time came to completely redeem. And we need to move on. <laughs> And when I look at this, my response is simply this. Wow. In, in the dog-eat-dog -dog world that we live in, climb the ladder at all costs. Do whatever you can to make yourself look better. This is not natural. To empty yourself of the prestige and privilege but brothers and sisters in Christ, this is exactly what our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ did for us. Now we continue with this. Not only did Christ empty himself, and I wanted to spend a little bit more time on the first one there. Christ emptied himself of divine privilege. Here's another one. Christ took on himself the form of a servant. And so remember, this is a passage of degrees. In other words, here's a degree with shock factor, and we're like, whoa, the great God, he became man. Wow. But then the next shock factor is this. Yeah, not only did he become a man, but he became a servant. A bond servant. Think of this. The passage says he emptied himself. 
by taking on the form of a bondservant. In my mind, I think, just like the Jews would have thought, if you go to 1 Corinthians chapters 1 through 3, they look at this, the heathen and the Jews even, look at this as being a stumbling block or even foolishness. Why would a holy God send his son to be a servant? What? Clearly, Paul is making a point in this passage. Christ took on the form of a servant. The passage says, Have this mind among yourself, which was also in Christ Jesus. And then, how is this mind in Christ Jesus? He took on the form of a servant. He took on the inner nature, identity, and outer vestiges and clothing of a willing and obedient bondservant. We've already talked about the different designations of servants in the past. One that served because he had to, the other that served because he was willing to do it. Jesus Christ was the willing bond servant. So in your mind, and I need to go quickly through this, maybe in our minds we're thinking, okay, a servant to whom? You think about that? Who is he serving? First and foremost, we're we're tempted to think he is going to serve us. And that's certainly true, but I think that's secondary to what's happening in this passage, especially what's happening in John 17. If you want to write down a passage, write down John 17 and this interaction with the Trinity. And who does Jesus Christ himself first serve? He serves the redemptive plan of the Trinity. He humbles himself, and that's why we have the terminology, he became obedient. He was obedient to the plan. And then because of that, now he serves those who would come to him by grace and faith. Brothers and sisters in Christ, Jesus came to serve you and to serve me. If you want to write down another passage, this would be a great one to study in this week or in small group. Write down John 13. What happens in John 13? Do you remember prior to going to the cross, Jesus Christ in the upper room, he laid aside his outer garments, he took a basin and took a, a washcloth, a rag, and he went around to every single one of his disciples with nasty, uh, mud-caked feet and washed them. Do you remember this? He came to serve. What is right at the conclusion of that whole cha- uh, passage in John? John 13, 15. Jesus says this. He looks at his disciples, I believe, and he says, I have given you a template. I've given you an example that you should do just as I have done to you. Wow. The King of kings and the Lord of lords was sent here to serve. I mean, so here's, now now let's move on to another one of these. This is a passage of degrees. Again, another one of these wow factor statements. So Jesus Christ emptied himself of divine privilege. Jesus Christ took on the form of a servant. Now here's another one tagged onto this. Jesus Christ was born in the likeness of men. We've already talked about the likeness of men part, but what about that born part? You ever thought about this? We talk about this a lot during Christmas time. That Jesus Christ was born born. I mean, in our minds, the picture of the most helpless individual ever is what? A baby. 
dependent on other human beings for every kind of protection, every kind of uh, provision. That is what a baby is. In my mind, I have this weird imagination sometimes. I'm thinking, well, God, why didn't you just teleport Jesus when he was 30? Why why didn't you just all of a sudden drop him into the wilderness and say, okay, now go die on the cross? Well, why? Scripture very clearly says he needed to identify with the brokenness of this world to be able to save us from the brokenness of this world. What passage comes to mind is this passage in Hebrews, Hebrews 4.15, if you want to write that down. We do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect, this is talking of Jesus, has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Jesus Christ was born, brothers and sisters in Christ. Lest we forget, lest we think that Jesus was born with a halo over his head. And everything was paved all the way through. Jesus Christ lived in this world of brokenness and was raised in this world of brokenness. Why? To fully redeem us. So in this this passage of degrees, we move on. Let's move on to the next point that Paul makes, because he really could stop there, but that's not, as we talked about a couple weeks ago, Paul Harvey, that's not the rest of the story. What's the rest of the story? Why did Jesus come? Why Why did Jesus empty himself, take on the form of a servant? Why was he born? Well, I believe we find this answer in verse 8 being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. What are we talking about here? Christ willingly submitted himself to the plan of the Trinity to die, to suffer human death. He became submissive to the suffering of the cross. Sometimes in our minds we have this really nice, clean Jesus hanging up on the cross. Everything okay, maybe one little drip of blood coming off of this, you know, crown of thorns. This was an ugly scenario here. Jesus Christ came to die. When we think of death, what is the worst scenario for the human in our minds? It is to die. That is the climax of the brokenness of this world, is death. This is what, G- what God the Father promised to Adam and Eve if they disobeyed, is death. And now Jesus Christ himself is suffering death. But in this passage of degrees, it doesn't stop with just death. He says, even the death of the cross. Why is that important? and plant ourselves back into this culture, very clearly there's a humiliation involved with the Roman cross. There's pain involved in the Roman cross. And Jesus Christ himself suffered the cross. This week being overwhelmed with this, often overwhelmed with what Jesus Christ did for me on the cross regularly consumed with how the great God-man did this 
for me. Death on the Roman cross was absolutely excruciating. In fact, that's where we get the word excruciating. It is from the cross. It was actually where, uh, I mean, it was the ultimate expression of Roman humiliation is to die on the cross. I was reading this week a bit and I reminded myself of some stuff I had read prior. Death by Roman crucifixion was the result of the whole body weight being supported by outstretched arms. When nailed to the cross, there was a massive strain that was put on the wrists, and you've heard this stuff before, but a massive strain that was placed on the wrists. The arms and the shoulders often resulting in the dislocation of the shoulder or the elbow joints. Any of you ever dislocated your shoulders or your elbows? The pain that's involved in that? Even hyperextending your elbow shoots pain? Well, the cross a lot of times would cause your shoulders to be absolutely dislocated. You're hanging there. The rib cage was constrained in a fixed position which made it extremely difficult to exhale and impossible to take a full breath. Have you ever been to that point where all you're doing is taking (gasps) slight little breaths, not a full one, and you can't wait till the next full breath happens? That was what was happening on the cross. You could not take a full breath. The victim would continually try to draw himself up by his feet to allow the inflation of the lungs, enduring terrible pain in his feet and legs, which were also nailed to this cross. The pain in his feet and legs became unbearable and the victim was forced to trade breathing for pain. You either have intense pain or you breathe. The length of time required to die from crucifixion could range from hours to a number of days. Obviously with our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ it was in the hours. The pain was so intense. When we think of this cross we have to think not just of pain but of humiliation. Jesus Christ utterly humiliated on the Roman cross. This was not just a playing a game thing. This was not just a put him in the grave thing. This was a humiliation thing. Even the death of the cross, the punishment of the Roman crucifixion was chiefly inflicted on, get this, slaves and the worst kind of criminals are the ones you would put up on the cross. Not king of kings and lord of lords. Crucifixion was considered a most shameful and disgraceful way to die. To this point, to the point that condemned Roman citizens were usually exempt from crucifixion because it was so humiliating and they didn't want to drag the citizenship through the mud. Here's the point. Jesus did this to provide unity. Jesus humiliated himself on the cross to provide for us a relationship with a holy God. Jesus did this to make the body of Christ, the church, possible. Brothers and sisters in Christ, do we realize that? Jesus did this to make this happen right here. I mean, does that not just take this whole discussion of unity in the body of Christ and take and just raise the bar massively high? Jesus did this so that we would be unified in the body of Christ. 
Jesus Christ humbled himself. Now in our obedient pursuit of unity through humility, we must deeply consider the example of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So what? We need to wrap this up. We, we don't want to just walk through a text without having some kind of application. How is this going to drive us this week to live differently? In our homes, at our workplaces, with our kids, on our sports teams, with our classmates. How are we going to be different this week? And I would think we should pose this question. First of all, do I ever actually deeply consider the example of Jesus Christ? Do I regularly consider the example of my Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ? So here's the thought is, I mean, back to those ridiculous illustrations I was given at the beginning. Is Christ my default template when it comes to how I respond, my actions and reactions? Is Christ set as my template for everything I do in my life? In the upper room prior to going to the cross, Jesus Christ, please remember this. Jesus Christ scrubbed the dirty feet of every one of the disciples, including whom? Including Judas and Peter, those who would betray him, the one who would deny him. This is who Jesus Christ served. And then following that, he says, I have given you an example that you should do as I have just done to you. Jesus served those who would betray him. Do we serve each other? Do we consider the example of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ? And I would follow that question with this. Not just consider it. Scripture's clear on Shema or hearing it and doing it. So here's the question. Will I faithfully follow the example of Christ this week? The humility of Jesus Christ question that demands an answer in each one of us is, if Jesus humbled himself, shouldn't I? If Jesus preferred others before himself, shouldn't I? This week, will I selflessly serve, and let's ask ourselves this question, this week, will we selflessly serve our family? Will we selflessly serve our wives, our wife, our husband? Will we selflessly serve our kids? Will we selflessly serve our friends, our neighbors, even the ones that are hard to get along with? Will we selflessly serve our coworkers, our classmates, our teammates? Will we selflessly serve my church friends, my church not-so-friends? <laughs> Will we serve as Jesus Christ did? Now, I purposely stopped in verse 8 today because next week we're going to see that although Jesus Christ was an example, he's much more than an example. Next week we see this passage. Please come to finish the rest of the story when it comes to Jesus Christ. Here's next week. Therefore God also has highly exalted him and given him a name which is above every name. That at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. This Jesus Christ that died on the cross for our sins, he didn't stay on the cross. This Jesus Christ that was put in the grave, he didn't stay in the grave. Jesus Christ rose victorious. 
for our relationship with God. 